Welcome to A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life, the accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. Hi there, I'm Jordan Rich with a pretty easy task and a fun one at that. I pose questions to Larry and with that razor sharp memory of his and a great talent for storytelling, well, you just have to settle back and enjoy the ride. Larry, today I want to continue to talk baseball with you and Red Sox baseball particularly and two dates pop up, 1912 and 1916. I'm more familiar with the 1912 date when it comes to the Sox has to do with Fenway Park opening and all that. But tell me more. Why these two dates? Well, it has to do with the Fenway Park opening because that's the year that they opened and they had players like uh, Tris Speaker and uh, Duffy Lewis and, uh, uh, you know, a couple of guys that went to the Hall of Fame. Jake Stahl played first base. I think he managed the team and so forth. And the first game ever played at Fenway Park was among two entities that even though one of them may not think so, yeah. are fighting for primacy then and now for the most favored entity in Boston, and that would be Harvard University and the Boston Red Sox. So, okay, they opened the game, and uh, the first guy up uh, for the Harvard guys was named uh, some Yankee name mm. and uh, typical. Right. And uh, the first guy up for the Red Sox had some Irish name. Uh, and uh, see, just an uh, ordinary guy. Well, it was a cold, blustery day. The seats hadn't even all been put in place. But it was, essentially, it was the Fenway Park we see today. First game ever on this cold day. They had a call it after the seventh inning with the, with the Red Sox leading two to nothing. And that was the year they went on in 1912 to win the World Series, the first of several during the teens. And by the way, the, the it season opens in April, and that's when the Titanic goes down. So it's a huge news event at that point, right? Yeah, I think that the the Titanic going down was pretty close to the opening. Very, event. very close. Yeah, that's that's why that date sings in my head. But let's talk further about the, the Harvard thing. Red Sox have been playing... Wait, wait, one more thing. So yeah. 1916. Okay, then I want to ask you a follow-up on 1912, but go ahead. In 1916, they played again. Okay. And the Red Sox won... Well, I think it was, yeah, uh, 1912... What, 15 or 16, the Red Sox won the World Series that year, too. They mm. won all the World Series. There. They were as dynasty-driven as the Yankees would become, absolutely. And, and and as dynasty-driven as the Red Sox have been so far in the, in the, in aughts. the 21st yes, century. Right, right. Right. So that in that game, they won. They beat the Red Sox. Harvard. Harvard. Uh, what I wanted to ask you earlier was about the, the tradition of playing a college team. They've been doing it ever since. Uh, in spring training, right? Yeah, I think that happens a lot. I mean, and BU, BC, uh, it's 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 become sort of a regular deal, and it must be a thrill for the college players, even then. Must have been a thrill then for the for the Harvard guys. <laughs> Absolutely. So Fenway Park opens in in 1912, and uh, we're going to get into the the amazing legends, and one of them, of course, is Babe Ruth, right? And People remember the no-no Nanette story. You know that back and forth. Well, you just know that Otani just won the MVP, and he was the first guy since Babe Ruth to to double in brass, so to speak. I mean, Otani won like 12 or 13 games and had an earned run average that was quite low, mm. um, around three, and hit 46 yeah. home runs. Yeah. 
drove in 100 runs, and was the unanimous MVP. Well, he's the first guy since Babe Ruth who did this kind of thing. For I think it was only like two seasons when Ruth was a full-time pitcher and a full-time player as well for the Red Sox. Now, you know, it's I don't know whether people realize how good a pitcher Babe Ruth was. If you look at the stats, his lifetime earned run average is around two-something. He won like 120 and lost only 60. I mean, he was a top pitcher. 20-game mm. winner, two or three, twice anyway. And uh, he was good. And even afterwards when he pitched for the Yankees, of course, he was out of practice, but I think he pitched four or five times and won them all. And he hadn't even reached his peak when he got to the Yankees, obviously. And, and people talk about Babe Ruth's hot dog eating. And, uh, and I got hot dog stories. We're going to get to the hot dog story. <laughs> but he's he's a remarkable, I'll use this in quotes, athlete for his time, hitting more home runs than anybody. I mean, what would baseball be like, Larry, had Babe Ruth not come along? It, it would be a different sport. Well, don't forget the 1919 Black Sox scandal came along around that time. And uh, Babe Ruth was traded to the Yankees, I think, in 1919. And the last year he was with the Red Sox, he did hit 29 home runs, which was a lot of home runs. But his first year with the Yankees, I think he hit 54 of them. Mm. And then year after year, except for the big stomach ache and thing. I mean, he was he was a carouser and drank and had fun. What's that line that he had uh, when he was asked in the late 20s, you realize you make more than the president of the United States? You know that answer? Yeah, I do. I'm trying to think of the punchline. Uh, I'll, I'll feed it to you. He, he said, well, I had a better year than the president. <laughs> <laughs> it was great. And did you, did you have any – well, you're from Boston and Brookline as, as I am. He lived in Sudbury for a while. Oh, he had a place out there that was like a like – a, that was mythical. And he had a big piano out there. And somehow it was rolled into the into the <laughs> pond in front of his house. Yeah. And I think that Babe Ruth probably was unhappy to leave Boston because he was very happy here. Yeah. I mean, the fans loved him. He was a great player. It's all Harry Frizee's fault. <laughs> Blame Broadway. Blame Broadway and no, no, Nanette. So um, let's talk a little – well, you mentioned hot dogs. I want to get into your hot dog story. Look, I'm getting hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> How can you get hungry for – Fenway Franks. Well, uh, Hebrew National Fenway Franks, maybe. Well, you know, so the first the first hot dog story I have is, you know, I'm sitting in the bleachers when I'm maybe in my early 20s, and I say to myself, I, I'm, you know, I, my culinary habits are, I like food, so I wanted to go down and get a hot dog. So I went down and got a hot dog, and I put some mustard on it, and I'm going to go back up to my seat, and there's, you know, the exit ways they're about 425 feet from home plate. So I'm walking up the ramp, and I catch a flash of something in my eye. Next thing I know, it hits my forehead. It's a, it's a, it's a home run. And uh, if it had hit me flush, it might have killed me. All right, stop for one second. You actually got hit on the head by a ball that's a home run? That's, I did. That's, that accounts for it. That that explains everything we've done to date, <laughs> and as long as I've known you, that explains. That is remarkable. I, I that's Guinness Book of World Records stuff. <laughs> Who hit the ball? Do you remember? Yes, that's the amazing part of the story. The ball was hit by a guy, an infielder, Bobby Young. I think mm -hmm. I forgot the name right. Uh, yeah, Bobby Young. Yeah, Bobby Young, 
who played six or seven years in the major leagues and hit something like nine or 10 or 12 home runs in his whole career. Now, where that ball came down is literally, it's a Ruthian smash, 425 feet. Probably the longest home run, longest hit that he ever got in his life. Mm-hmm. But it was Bobby Young, and but I was, you know, it wasn't hit hard enough to really injure me, and I went back up to my seat and watched the game. Did you retrieve the ball, or did somebody else no, get the ball? No, somebody else retrieved Somebody else got the ball. And what about the hot dog? Did, was it smushed, or was it <laughs> edible at that point? No, I forget about that. I, I forgot what happened <laughs> to that hot dog. I couldn't have held on to it. <laughs> But and uh, but that is one of the greatest story, <laughs> baseball stories of all time. You know, you hear about people making great catches in in the uh, infield seats or whatever, but getting one off the noggin. Who uh, Jose Canseco and you have something in common? Remember when Jose Canseco was playing outfield for the Red Sox and he took his and he looked for the ball and it knocked him right on the bo- on the on the <laughs> beam. Anyway, great story. Well, but, I took Lois out one day to see Canseco and Maguire when they were playing for the for the Athletics. And I said, hey, Lois, let's sit in the let's sit in the first base stands because these guys are right-handed batters, and instead of the ball being in front of you and going away from uh, and going across your vision, these guys can hit the ball so far that if they connect, it'll be a P, a P in the sky. Yeah, so we sat in the first base stands, and the, I think between the two of them, they hit three or four home runs <laughs> that day. You know, the, on the juiced up, the juiced up ball. Yeah, and they were peas in the sky. I mean, these ball from first base, you saw it go, and it looked like a golf ball. You remember the uh, Ted Williams appearance at the All Star Game, nineteen ninety nine? I think it was. Yes. When uh, they had the home run derby the night before, and McGuire was shooting rockets out of the ballpark. Um, all ancient history now, as we know. Let's back up a little bit. I just want to go through my list of things to ask you Well, you, you got about. the other hot dog. Oh, all right. Let's do hot dog two. Why not? So this is lately. This is about maybe in the teens, uh, 2015, 16. Okay. So now they have a little better hot dog. It's not the greatest hot dog, but you go out to the ball game and it's a hot dog. Buy me some, uh, you know, Peanuts take and me out to the ball jack. game. Buy me a <laughs> You know, hot dog and Cracker Jacks, whatever yeah, it is. Yeah. So anyway, I went under the stands and I got a hot dog. And I put I put under it, I put uh, uh, sauerkraut and I put the pickle relish yeah. and the mustard. Anyway, it was really juiced up. And it, with balancing it with a drink, I was in the box seats. And, I come, and something must have happened on the field. And I looked up and the hot dog tumbled over onto the back of the guy in front of me, and it made an ungodly mess all over his shirt. So he turned around, and he must have looked at me and said, I can't I can't clock this guy. He's an old guy. Yeah. So anyway, you know, I apologized profusely. So age was working in your favor at that point, right? Well, you know, I, I suppose it was, although I entertain. You know me well enough to know that I entertain daily the idea that I'm like 35 or something. But in any event, um, he was very nice about it, and he <laughs> scraped off his shirt and watched the game. I would imagine, that having been to Fenway a million times myself, Larry, that um, so many hot dogs don't make it to the stands because <laughs> you're carrying hot dogs and beer or whatever and, and ice cream and all kinds of stuff. Yeah, listen, Jordan, you know, you've pinpointed the reason that I really don't like 
parties where people take things off the table and have to walk around eating and stuff. To me, eating is something where you sit down and you enjoy the food. But, I, you know, I'm not really happy with buffets and stuff like that. We're going to get back to uh, Babe Ruth and Ted and a bunch of other things. But I want to circle back and go here to the American Institute of Architects. And yeah, I'm wondering right. what – what role that plays here at this point? Well, I'm sort of an inquisitive guy, so I went. Uh, I was looking at a book about famous buildings in the, in a book published by the American Institute of Architects, mm-hmm. and I didn't see Fenway Park, and I thought that was a glaring omission, because I think Fenway Park is an historical structure. Oh, absolutely. It's still you know existing as a baseball field 110 years later, and it's got all sorts of nooks and crannies. You know, it's like a it's like a parallelogram, you know, pressed in. It really is sort of um, eccentric in shape, and that causes all these crazy bounces and stuff like that that you don't get in these cookie-cutter stadiums. And I think that Fenway Park should have been in there, so that's why I mentioned the American Institute of Architects. I don't think I wrote a letter, but I was thinking of <laughs> writing a letter to the American Institute and saying something like uh, – it is. It is. It is one of Boston's notable buildings. And and the fact that it's been uh, repositioned and redesigned to be present and and to be vital today is amazing. The, you got to give credit to the owners because a lot of people wanted to scrap it and build another stadium in South Boston, but they kept uh, they kept it the way it is to a certain extent. I think so. I mean, I, I you know Lois. Uh, was all for a new stadium. Why? Because the the women's room was not particularly helpful and the men's room the same way. But uh, it does have deficiencies. The seats are a bit smaller because people were a little smaller then. But I just think it's a gem. I couldn't agree more. Uh, Let's talk about your dad and getting to games. And I know there's a, a note here about your dad, Jimmy Fox, Ted Williams, and UMass and the library there. But you, we started chatting about your first game. What was it, 1936, and you were five years old or something? Yeah. Five. Uh, what's the connection to Jimmy Fox, who was one of my all-time heroes? I never saw him play, but I love his story. Oh, well, what ha- uh, what there my father took me to a ball game in, I think it was 1940, mm-hmm. Ted's second year in the major leagues. And one of Fox, Fox's, I think it might have been Fox's, last season in which he was really a great star. Um, and uh, he really was a great star. His stats are incredible when you look at them. Uh, he had 50 home runs one season for the Red Sox, 58 home runs one season for the Athletics. So we went out to a game. We sat about halfway up on the first base grandstand. Sox lost the first game as a doubleheader with the White Sox. And a guy, as you know, often happens uh, with fans of the Red Sox, comes comes up the alley and he says, I can't stand these guys. And mm-hmm. he looks at my f- father and me and says, you want my box seats? Take them. <laughs> Jeez. <laughs> Another very satisfied Red Sox fan. <laughs> so we took them and we were sitting like the second row. Now it comes to the end of the game. It's eight to eight. And um, so Ted Williams comes up and he hits one of those line drive, top spin line drives for a single in a right field. And Fox comes up. And they used to call him the Beast, and he was certainly beastly that day because he smashed a game-winning home run out by the flagpole into the screen. Way I mean, it was a, it was a, a long hit. And um, how old was I at that time? I was I was nine years old. So that um, I think that I 
thought I remembered it when I got to UMass, but I said to myself, did that really happen? So, you know, at UMass in the library, they had stacks with old New York Times. Oh. So I went to the New York Times. This is my initiation into antiquarian bookshops, libraries, dusty places in the recesses of buildings where you could find historical stuff that, you know, was terrific. So anyway, I, I looked, and there was in the box, socks beat Chai Sox, Sox split, Red Sox split, Fox hits game-winning home run. So there was. There it is. And, it's, and, uh, box and, scores don't lie. Yeah, it really happened. And um, you say that he was one of your heroes, and if you had seen him alive, uh, i seen him hit. He was He was a bear, right? I mean, big, broad-shouldered, right, but, husky, He strong. came from the coal region yeah. of Maryland, I think. And, yeah, uh, yeah and there was a first cool baseman league, uh, for the Red Sox. First yeah. baseman. And he was, but, you know, his stats are just out of We all sight. remember certain events, if we're baseball fans, particularly in Boston and New England, uh, where we were when certain things happened. You have an event, also you were about nine or eight years old in 1939, uh, about a movie at the old Fenway Mass Ave Theater, and it involves some interesting baseball tie-ins. They do, and tie-ins that I never would have believed because they came at a later time. Anyway, my parents used to take me to the movies, and um, they used to have friends, so a couple of friends and my mother and father, and then we went to the old Fenway movie theater, which is now the Berkeley Performance Center. Oh, yeah, right. And uh, at Fenway Park. So we come out, and the Red Sox were playing at Fenway Park that day, and the Record American, which is now extinct, but they used to have all the early box scores— you might recall that, the Record American. I do indeed. And the guy in the back seat bought the Record American, and he says, oh, my God, that skinny kid hit two more home runs today, meaning Ted Williams. So that, uh, I, you know, and I, I, I do remember this. And uh, so then, again, I'm checking my memory, going back into those dusty recesses so that um, turns out that uh, I checked the record, the, uh, Ted's home run record. Now that was the only game, and it, it did it did happen on September something, September third, I think it was, two days after the Nazi blitzkrieg on Poland, and um, four years before Ted himself entered the service, where he made such history in two different wars and two different times in the flying for the Marines. But in any event, um, who was pitching that day? That Ted hit the two home runs off in Fenway Park, the only time he hit two home runs that season, at home anyway, uh, Bump Hadley. Now, who's Bump Hadley? Bump Hadley was a pitcher from Lynn, and he pitched for the Yankees. And as I checked further into it, what came out was that, and this is how Ted Williams and Ty Cobb are connected, Hadley gave up the last hit in Ty Cobb's career when he was playing for the Philadelphia Athletics in 1928. Mm-hmm. And nine years later, there's Ted Williams. No, no, 11 years later, there's Ted Williams hitting two home runs That's off Bump Hadley. I also love the name Bump Hadley. What a great, that's a great baseball name, Larry. And not only that, as I just yeah. referred to, the other, uh, uh, the other coincidence— was that this was a couple of days, you know, uh, you know that the war had begun just yeah. a couple of days before. September, September 1st, the war yeah, began. Yeah, September 1st, right. War so began the, in Europe, wow. And me, I'm just a kid, 
you know, going to the movies with my mother and father. You're you're such a fan, but the fact that you were even alive then when Ty Cobb was wrapping up, uh, well, he'd already wrapped up, and Ted Williams was starting. What a terrific time. And that brings up another event that occurs in 42, and I want to talk to you about this because this is where it gets personal, where you actually meet your idol. <laughs> and and not just meet your idol, but get something very, very uh, special out of as a result. Well, it's like a one-eyed Conley. I'm always breaking into things. So what? <laughs> but anyway, this one in 1942. By then, he's already. That's his last year before he goes into World War II. And and 41 was just 406, right? Yeah, 406. Sure. The year before. So everybody, uh, you know, Ted Williams was the big hero, and this is before a game, and a bunch of kids are milling around on the field. They all went want to get close to Ted. So the photographer groups us all, ten or twelve of us. Uh, with Ted standing in the middle, takes a picture, and it's in the paper the next day. Okay, fine. Not a big deal, but nice. I think that's pretty cool. So then uh, it reminded me of election night in 1960. So I said to myself, got to get downtown because JFK is giving his final speech at Faneuil Hall tonight. Um, And then he's going to go over to the Boston Garden. So the stairwell, so I stationed myself on the stairwell going up to the second floor where he gave his final talk in Faneuil Hall. And I, and he, he brushed right by me on the way up, handsome JFK. And then I said, I got to get over to Boston Garden because I'll be over there with all the local politicos. And there there was some guy on the stage who took a picture from the back showing JFK at the rostrum and all these guys, John McCormick, who God knows who else, uh, and um, there I was in the fifth or sixth row among 13,000 people. Did you ever see the movie Zelig? Yeah, right. Woody Allen? Like a, you're, yeah. you're a Zelig of your own making here. Imagine that. What, what, uh, just a quick question. When he brushed by you on the stairwell at Fandle Hall, this is the future president of the United States, uh, was he surrounded by a phalanx of security and staff, or was it just the two of you for a split second? Oh, no, no, it was crowded. There were yeah. a lot of okay. people there. Right. But as he brushed by me, he said, hi, Larry. No, I'm just <laughs> <laughs> He said, I got a position for you in my cabinet if you're interested. <laughs> Secretary of Baseball. I was already a lawyer at that time. And, you know, I, I think I might have told the story previously when I wrote Voices of Brookline and I sent a copy to Ted Kennedy, and he sent back this letter to me. I uh, he, that he liked the book. I only wish that Jack were here to read it too so that, you know, I've had some That's a very connection nice. with it. That was a beautiful letter. I want to talk about one more Ted-related issue in this segment, and that is uh, something you referred to as Ted and the Babe, 1943. Now, if memory serves, the Babe was certainly at the end of his career at that point. Oh, yeah. He last game he played was 1935 right. with the Braves. And... Um, so that, um, but the, this was the midst of the war, and Ted was given a little bit of time off. He was in training to be a pilot at that time, and the Babe was leading a team around the country as part of the war effort. And so there was a home run hitting contest before the game, and the Babe hit a few balls out by the foul pole that were foul. Uh, and in the game itself, Ted hit, which shows, you know, he came back, for, when he came back from Korea, he batted like over 400 for those last 30 games of the season mm. with 13 home runs Incredible. in September. Incredible. Unbelievable. Incredible. I mean, and he had almost been killed in, in Korea. Mm-hmm. So anyway, he comes up in the middle of the game and he hits a line drive into the center field bleachers. Probably hadn't played a game in a year. 
And, you know, just like that, whack. What a set of eyeballs. Greatest eyesight ever, I think, and uh, and timing and just natural raw talent. Uh, and you saw him when he was the splendid splinter. You saw him when he was really skinny when he came up, right? Yeah. Oh, I saw him, you know, through the whole course of his <laughs> career. And, um, you know, uh, he, he was, uh, he you know, some people think he was the greatest hitter ever. When you look at the statistics, I mean, Ted Williams has the highest on-base percentage in baseball history. Four, 83 or something like that. Reach base half the time. Yeah, yeah. And and it, take out the war years, and there were a lot of them. Uh, he might have broken every record, including the home run record. I mean, he was on his way. I mean, he missed five whole seasons and another one with an injury so that uh, God mm-hmm. knows what he would have done. And they were afraid to pitch to him, Jordan. I mean, the pitchers would look at him and they'd say, not for me. <laughs> and the next thing you know, he's walking. Uh, or hitting the ball anyway, just finding a way to, to beat them. We are going to talk further about uh, uh, baseball players of great note, including one that uh, really features prominently in, in your books. I'm just ready for another hot dog. Are you? Yeah, I don't see any hot dogs. Because <laughs> <laughs> I'm afraid you're going to spill it on me. <laughs> Thanks, Larry. On myself. Thank you. This has been a life lived backwards, one man's life. The accompanying podcast to Larry Ruttman's memoir, A Life Lived Backwards, an existential triad of friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation. You can subscribe and download this podcast, available on all podcast platforms. For information on Larry, his books, lectures, and much more, visit the website LarryRutman.com. Also check out the extensive Larry Rutman page on Wikipedia. This is Jordan Rich inviting you to join us again next time as Larry shares more stories about friendship, inquisitiveness, and maturation on A Life Lived Backwards, One Man's Life.